0: Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Arminic Bali.
1: And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Square Enix somehow made a profit and Flappy Bird returns. Also, Oculus is making its own games right as they fix their beef with ZeniMax. Plus, we talked to Colin Williamson about localizing Final Fantasy games as we get into a new theme month.
0: And we went to Comics vs. Games and the Bit Bizarre to talk about shifting between mediums. But first, everyone who bet on the Kinect, I have some bad news.
1: So in a move surprising no one, Microsoft has cut the price of the Xbox One down to $400, the same price as a PlayStation 4.
0: This was I mean we've all kind of expected this for a while. The the $500 price range has made it, yes, it it's it kind of it's a PS3 price range when yeah. it first came out when people thought oh no that's way too expensive. Exactly and I mean nobody really wants the connect, which
1: is why in a move that's more surprising but still logical they are selling a connect free version of the console because Microsoft was really sold on this whole connect thing.
0: The thing is they were trying to sell it for such a long time like they, they came out and said hey look the reason you can't disconnect this weird thing that watches you all the time is because it is integral to the interface. You are going to want to use your voice or hand gestures to move around this interface instead of a Controller. Because that is somehow
1: more convenient. Um, but in a move that's also totally surprising and confusing me, this is happening two weeks before E3.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the thing is supposed to come out, the connectless version of the Xbox is going to be at June 9th. Which is right as E3 starts. Yeah. I
1: believe that's the day of Sony's press conference. Uh,
0: which I guess is the only way to, I mean, that's an f- interesting way to kind of take away... Uh, interest from Sony, but I can't it's, imagine, like, it being all that effective.
1: It's a gamble. I think what it is is that people, they're thinking, it's not that they're going to suddenly sell more, it's that they are they think they have something up their sleeve at E3, or they're playing chicken and they don't have anything, but they don't think Sony does either, and they're saying that people now be slightly more interested in picking up an Xbox, because now it's the same price as a PlayStation 3.
0: This is just one of, like, four revisions that they've done so far. Vid- right. The DRM, and now this, I mean... The whole thing with uh the whole thing with I feel like they didn't quite know what they were getting into when they put this console together, mm-hmm. like they had an idea and then had no idea how to communicate it to the masses in a way that would make sense as a result like I feel they were just they had like- bl- they were blindsided when they really shouldn't have been um i I mean this stuff probably would have been much easier to swallow if it was something. At, like if the Connect maybe not was optional, but if the price was just a little cheaper, maybe I mean I know that every manufacturer takes a hit on making these consoles. But if you really want to sell the Connect, the price point you got to do is you got to be able to say not only are you getting this console, the Connect is extra. You can't say oh this you're paying a hundred extra dollars for the Xbox One right. because I don't want to pay a hundred extra dollars for Connect uh, on my Xbox One.
1: Exactly, and now they're going to be selling it extra for a hundred dollars at some point, and they say in the fall it'll be an exclusive Connect available. But I think they didn't know what they've been getting to with the Connect for years now.
0: Like, thing, well, it's like at least the Connect works now.
1: It, that's true because it did not on the Xbox 360 because what was it? They got rid of some essential like chips in in it that were able. basically essentially the original 360 Connect when when it was given out as dev kits had an internal processor. It was a, like it had its own CPU which was able to handle stuff on the fly that didn't have to go through the Xbox. When it came out, much closer to release, they got upgraded dev kits that did not have the processors, and so developers were screwed because the 360 was develop you know—was handling an entire game, and the Kinect was handling the Kinect stuff, which is why most games just had voice commands and nothing else.
0: It's they they just couldn't compensate for exactly the, lack of the processor
1: the connect because now the connect is the connect was literally just a camera yep. now I believe this connect actually does have processors inside because it's in the box and they can afford to do something like that but nobody wants it because you know connect is associated with being terrible for you know what was it it was it launched in two thousand ten four years now that we've we've known that the connect is terrible
0: it's like they banked on this technology first too early but they gave it a bad reputation and then they put it at a price point where it seemed like you're getting extra for something that didn't quite um, seem of value considering that there's not many Kinect games out right now. I mean, that's the other thing. You're paying a hundred dollars for something that's basically like an easier way to access Netflix.
1: Exactly, and and what's worse about it now there won't be any Kinect games yes. because if there's one thing we've learned about fragmenting markets and releasing peripherals is that nobody will develop for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, like Harmonix is probably screwed now when they were working on. Um... They were, working, they were probably working on uh, the new Dance Central game on top of Fantasia, which is mm-hmm. that Disney um, music game. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, Harmonix is stuck. Yeah. <laughs> Dance Central, it was a Dance Central 4, which was
1: definitely, definitely in development. And um, like you said, Fantasia. Fantasia was probably going to be really big, but now that I'm going to say after E3, probably 50% of their market share doesn't have a connect. why would you ever bother?
0: As for the, there are a few other changes, namely that... Um, It looks like if you want to access Netflix, you won't have to pay, finally. (laughs) Which is, wow, what is that, five years coming now? That that is the dumbest uh, thing that they have been withholding behind their Xbox Live Gold subscription.
1: Except except you still need to pay to play MMOs and free-to-play games. You still need to have gold for that. Yeah. uh, Because I guess those count as online somehow. And um, the other services will be put behind the gold paywall to make up for it. There's a balance, basically.
0: Well, you know what, like, at the very least, they've got to match up with Roku. Like, that's yeah. th- th- that's at least where they got to be. Hey, you don't need to pay money to access Skype on your Xbox One. I can
1: go home when this goes into effect. <laughs> I can go home and go to my Xbox 360 and use Internet Explorer on Xbox 360. Congratulations. I- I remember that E3 when they announced that you'd be able to use Internet Explorer on your Xbox 360? <laughs> <laughs> remember the boos in the audience? That was like when Sony
0: said the Vita would use um, AT&T. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The um, I think one thing it is, though, is that this is going to be a very interesting E3, especially as these consoles have basically, they've now slashed the parts of them that made them unique. Yeah, now that they're exactly the same
1: and kind of underwhelming, that the PlayStation 4 doesn't really have anything on the horizon, and the Xbox One is just a PlayStation 4. The It's, it's going to be a weird, it's a real fight now that yeah. they're both at the same price with the same kind of moving forward, but I don't know what they have in store, like Uncharted 4 and Halo 5... Which neither of which seem very exciting as a person who likes Uncharted and like and kind of likes Halo. I feel like they, they did
0: everything they could have with Uncharted, yeah. really. Like, Uncharted's big thing was Indiana, being Indiana Jones, and they got really good at being Indiana Jones. Exactly.
1: The Last of Us 2, actually, there was more of us. Yeah. Um, um, Gears of War 4. Gears of 4. Gears of 4. <laughs> <laughs> um, Excuse me, I have to
0: go to Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been hired. <laughs> Uh, oh, Phil Spector
1: is standing right outside the, uh, the studio. Phil Spencer, not Phil Spector. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's also standing outside the
1: studio. I don't know why.
0: Well, he's slowly murdering Phil Spencer. <laughs> is what's going on? Peter
1: uh, Molyneux is there, too. I think that's like the father, the son, the Holy
0: Ghost. <laughs> he's making a game out of watching Phil Spector yeah. murder Phil Spencer. This is not going to be in the final show. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in any case... Um, Let's move on to so speaking of big fights. It looks like these guys are having a fight with cash yep. as Sony ended the fiscal year up in revenue, but down on profits. Yep.
1: As surprising nobody, Sony's kind of had a troubling year. They had a 14% in revenue to $75 billion, but are down in profits, recording a net loss of $1.26 billion down from last year's 400 million profits.
0: I mean the PlayStation is still making money by comparison it's one of the few departments where they where the PlayStation where uh, Sony well, that are actually making it's, cash. it's 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 got re- it's got income
1: and yeah. revenue it <laughs> certainly doesn't have profits but you know that's not to be expected
0: So the PS4 sold 7 million units by April 6th, increasing revenues from 38% to 9.5 million, but the games division is still working off a 78 million operating loss. Um, Most of these losses are attributed to uh, Sony's exit from the PC market, unforeseen costs like Sony Online Entertainment sales being written off or being added up. Yeah, that was apparently $6
1: million of them just writing off Sony Sony Online Entertainment, just selling off all their PC games.
0: Uh, well, it's like I think it was a mistake. They they got into those PC games, assuming that they'd eventually be able to pull them all to consoles. And console MMOs turned out ah, yeah, not, not to not be so a bust. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: and but they yeah they totally exited the PC market. I believe in February, and they and they've been trying to sell it off. But I guess nobody's biting. So they're now stuck with this just sort of hemorrhaging money that they can't do anything with.
0: Yeah, um, and. <laughs>
1: Not to mention the fact that they sold their uh, company headquarters this year and uh, also sold off all their shares in Square Enix.
0: Yeah, so pr- they're basically a projecting a eight hundred million in losses related to the PC business. And um, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Kasurai and other Sony executives are taking a fifty percent pay cut and foregoing bonuses this year. I mean, which we gotta say about Japanese companies, at the very yeah. least, if they do poorly, they, they... they don't they don't just lay everybody
1: off in a wildfire, they take responsibility to the to the top brass, which is perfectly respectable. Um, I can't that the the other thing they're also projecting that sales will be staying flat. Which is never a good thing to say. More inexplicable than that, Square Enix is making money. How we don't know. They reported a sixty-five million dollar net income, a four point eight increase in sale, four point eight percent increase in sales, and a hundred and three dollars, hundred and three million dollars in operating income, up from last year's six million dollar, sixty sorry, sixty million dollar operating loss. This is so dumbfounding I can't even read the numbers.
0: They cite good sales of Final Fantasy ten, ten two HD, uh, Thief, uh, Tomb Raider. Definitive Edition and a Realm Reborn which makes sense considering that that's two remakes a relaunch and a reboot in in one year those are their highest selling games but,
1: nothing original no original co- Thief is original content to be fair
0: but Thief was terrible yes. like, like Thief was Thief was so bad that they had like severe sound editing issues along with like arrows getting stuck in the air it's like, the
1: only game I've ever seen that I think has audio desync
0: yeah it's, a, it's amazing how much like, and cutscenes don't even make any sense. It's just <sighs> that game is terrible. I'm anyway the hey,
1: um, sold great apparently. Yeah
0: 2013 was a disaster for uh, Square Enix um, and it caused then CEO uh, Yoichi Wada to resign and as that part of the report Square Enix also says that they expect to sell 5.23 million fewer games this year, um, mostly the in the North American market. Um, the report doesn't say why they predict this, but it's probably uh, that probably likely you won't be seeing um, Final Fantasy XV or Kingdom Hearts three in 2015. Yeah, they're probably saying, "Hey guys, we don't have anything in the pipe." <laughs> yeah, uh, which I mean, what does it, most of the stuff in their pipe has always been in recent years? Have been idos. Yeah, um, who is sort of idosed out, like yeah. Yeah, between Thief.
1: In the last three years, we've had Thief, Tomb Raider, Hitman. Like, what can they do right now? Uh,
0: Oh, and the year before that, Deus Ex. Deus Ex, uh, and then they did Deus Ex The Fall.
1: Right. So Um. they're, they're tapped out. They need another year to make a video game.
0: Speaking of a little crazy, Ubisoft is making money and going a little nuts alongside it. So gross profits in 2014 for them were $980 million, and most of that money came from Assassin's Creed and South Park. But uh, it looks like they're making a bunch of weird decisions on top of that. Yeah, so today, about 10 minutes before we recorded this, they
1: announced Far Cry 4, which has an amazingly racist cover. It is uh, a white man. In a pink suit. He looks kind of like Miles Edgeworth. Uh, sitting on a Buddha statue that he is covering with his head on a. I, what I can only assume is a Tibetan man, because it takes place in the Himalayas. Uh, his hand on top of his head, as if he is subservient to him, with the man in a kneeling praying position holding a grenade.
0: Oh, that's that's rough, man. Um, this
1: coming after Far Cry 3 was White Savior, the video game.
0: I'm pretty sure this is also going to be White Savior, the video game. Yes,
1: except this time you get to save the Himalayas.
0: Yeah, I bo- see. What the, what, the, what the Tibetan people have always needed in their fight against the Chinese government has been white people.
1: Yeah, that's really what they were missing, um, and maybe some homophobia.
0: Meanwhile, it looks like they're uh, they've been having some issues with their pre-orders, in that there's so goddamn many different versions of that game.
1: Watchdogs, specifically. Watchdi- yeah, Watchdogs. All- oh, by the way, they announced Far Cry for today, but there's already pre-order bonuses. Just so you know, <sighs> breathe calmly.
0: There's already the DL- pre-order DLC. <laughs> Okay, so this game has nine different versions, included, plus the season pass that you can buy.
1: Um, if you want to get all of the exclusive content across all the versions, it'll cost you more than $1,000 for Watch Dogs.
0: Which is insane. I mean, that's... pre have always been kind of a joke. Look, if you come in maybe uh, two days after the game comes out, most likely they'll have a copy. Well, speaking of things that you will eventually get, um, Flappy Bird looks like it's making a return. Yes, according to CNBC, of all places, uh, Flappy
1: Bird will be be flapping again this summer. Uh, Dong Nguyen, speaking to CNBC's Kelly Evans, said the game is coming back in August with uh, added multiplayer modes.
0: Yeah, so in case you forgot, because the internet moves really fast, Flappy Bird was a game that we all cared about a lot because it looked really hard, and then the creator took it down because they thought it was too addicting. Also because everyone was attacking him. Yeah, also because he was getting death threats. Yeah, so in any case, um, there was a bunch of like weird conspiracy about whether he um, paid money to promote it on the store. Or and ripped bu- it off from Nintendo the- or something. Yeah, but in any One case... One of those
1: halcyon days of February. <laughs>
0: Uh, it looks like the game wasn't that addictive because um, he's going to come back and release a new version of the game.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Zeitgeist has passed.
0: Yeah, like, I no. I don't think anybody actually cares about Flappy Bird anymore. We're all now playing um, 248, 2048. Yeah,
1: 2048, and, and, and even that's gone. Like, Yep. No. I don't, know, I don't, know, what, I don't know what App Store games people are playing now. Uh, hopefully it's Freeze. It's not three. I want it to be Threes. Oh, Monument Valley, I guess. Yeah. It's Monument Valley. That game's fun. Yeah, sure. Listen, no problem. But yeah, I don't think anybody cares about Flappy Bird anymore. But I guess that's what he wanted. He doesn't really want people to care about Flappy Bird.
0: Um, other things he plans to add is something like a multiplayer mode. Um,
1: Yep, which I don't know how that'll work. Uh, He's actually released a game since since it went down. I think it's called, um, Block Smasher? Kitty Smasher. Okay. Uh, so he's still making games. I think he just wants his games to not be popular. That's all he wants in the world. Well,
0: I think he was really scared and just didn't know how to respond to a whole bunch of people attacking him all at once, followed by, um... What was it? So, I mean, going quiet for him, and he didn't, I probably didn't realize, like, what that pop, what being attacked probably meant. Yeah. Like, he didn't realize, oh, no, this just means, like, this segment of people that you are getting who hate you um, are just a small portion of this massive population who have decided to play your game and give you a ton of money through ads. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, video games, guys. I don't know how we segue to the next thing. Well, speaking of video games... There um, we go. Hey. <laughs> Um, Oculus is going to be making their own um, as they've hired uh, Kenneth Scott, an ex-343 uh, art director and a founding member of that yeah, studio, too. founding member of 343. Uh, I guess the
1: only game he worked on there was Halo 4. Uh, he is now heading up Oculus Rift's internal first-party development studio.
0: Yeah. So last month, Valve developers Michael Abrash and Aaron Nichols joined a company, likely for the same purposes. Um, and they've been working on a bunch of ideas for first party, but namely an MMO. Yeah. According to I don't remember exactly who said it was Oculus
1: CEO. It wasn't uh, Parma Lucky. It was it was somebody else. He saw, he says he's they're he, Oculus is dreaming of a VR MMO that supports a billion players. Which, for the record, I think is actually literally just Facebook.
0: Well, like if you've ever have you read uh, Ready Player One?
1: Yes. Yes. So he's they're making
0: yeah they've made that. Yeah, like, like that's what um that's what they're trying to make is, the, like, that's what my big fear of Oculus is that it leads to leads to the bad end for humanity and that we're yeah. all wearing Oculus headsets inside our rooms and getting slowly fatter and infrastructure all dies around us. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you want me to go back to this story about Ernest Cline and, and George R. R. Martin's Lamborghini <laughs> or Delorean because we talked about this already? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like. First party development me- means basically that Oculus realized they need their own games in order to they succeed. Need to, they need to be a platform. Yeah. They
1: can't be, I mean, we talked about Harmonics where they can't be like Harmonix and relying on somebody else's peripheral. Yeah. Because yeah. that will always go away. I mean, Harmonix had their own peripheral for a bit, but even that dies. You can't be a peripheral. You need to be, Oculus needs to feel like it's its own system, which is probably why it actually probably won't ever spread to consoles, I don't think.
0: Yeah, well, just, well, and probably why Sony is investing in their own thing, because their hope is that, look, this the PlayStation will then Become this P- this VR platform,
1: right? But for now, Project Morpheus is definitely definitely a peripheral. Rest the Oculus needs to be its own platform, and for yep. that, they need to develop their own games. And they can't just be small distractions; they need to be real things you play. John Carmack was definitely a good get in that sense. You yep. can definitely say from the maker of Doom,
0: and like the idea that um, they're going to be having. Um, they're basically going. To, they're likely. I bet is going. To, they're going to start having their own Steam. I mean, Facebook has their own infrastructure for kind of selling games and selling products. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can't see why not. They would just open up their own store and say, "Hey, look, here's our ecosystem that you can then put all your VR products on."
1: Yeah. Um, and and Palmer Luckey definitely has been talking up a UI, an internal UI for the Oculus that let you switch games and come back to your computer and just kind of and, and just kind of operate without having to always be in a game.
0: Which I mean would make sense in the long term if you. Want people to never take off the VR headset and be trapped in a virtual world for, for the rest of their lives. Forever. The funny thing with VR is that I think you had a really weird experience when we played VR the other week. Yes, uh, we'll get to TCAF, uh, sorry, TCAF,
1: Kongs uh, vs. Games in a bit bizarre later. Uh, we I demoed uh, the VR games at the VRK that Games vs. Games put on, and uh, it turns out VR, fully immersive VR, makes me super, super sweaty. <laughs>
0: While I nearly vomited after playing the second game.
1: And uh my friend who played it, one of them came out of there, he was he actually went like he needed to I gave him my bottle of water and he downed the whole thing, like he couldn't handle it. And the other one came out of there just red in the face and never wanted to do it again.
0: Like the big problem with those games is that their frame rate was slow so low yeah. that it felt like um like, it, it was a bad experience. Like, I'm... So, like it, it was a
1: bad... Tr- I kind of liked it. I was mm. definitely really sweaty. I didn't like taking it off. Coming back to the real world was really freaky for me, but having it on was super cool. Uh,
0: the future is sweaty, you guys. <laughs> the future is so, so sweaty. Um, speaking of sweat, though... Um... It looks like ZeniMax and Oculus—they've had a lawsuit going back and forth—and ZeniMax is heating. It's on the Oculus side; it's actually heating up. So, just very quickly, um, last week—or well, two weeks ago—ZeniMax sent a basically a report to Oculus saying a cease and desist letter. Yeah, hey, you owe us um, tons of money because uh, John Carmack um, used some of the code that he made from while at ZeniMax in the oculus system for a while people speculated well maybe that meant like oh while he was at ZeniMax, he might have written something and therefore based on the ZeniMax weird... kind of owns it yeah technically but oculus has fired back with a series of points um that are pretty hardcore so um john carmack first of all did not take any intellectual property from ZeniMax. ZeniMax has misstated the purposes of the ZeniMax non-disclosure agreement about that palmer um, palmer lucky signed um a key reason that John um, permanently let Zenimax in August of 2013 was that Zenimax prevented John from working on VR. Um Zenimax canceled support for Doom 3 BFG edition when Oculus refused Zenimax's demands for a non-dilutable equity st- stake in Oculus. A non-dilutable equity st- stake by the way is basically like when you buy a stake in the company, um, you have the opportunity of, say, uh, if you generate a ton of shares mm-hmm. and you say, I own 30% of this company, right? Now, I generate, I double the amount of shares. That means the shares that I own are now 15% because they're mm-hmm. now double the amount of shares. A non dilutable stake means that when, regardless of what I have, I will always have 30%.
1: Right. They will always be. When those shares get diluted, you will be given more shares to shore up the,
0: the loss. Exactly. Um, and- that was what uh, they were refusing to give to ZeniMax. ZeniMax did not pursue claims against Oculus for IP or technology. ZeniMax has never contributed to IP or technology to Oculus only after Facebook deal was announced has ZeniMax now made these claims through its lawyers.
1: And despite the fact that full source code for the Oculus SDK is available online, ZeniMax has never identified any stolen code or technology.
3: Which
0: I think is the strongest point. Yeah. Like it's fully, you, you can look at the code and point, you could actually point out. You could point out exactly what code, name, like they're. Thing. name is the code we dare you there isn't any yeah
1: it's and you know f- f- fair play to him because I, I don't think Karmax stole anything from Zenimax
0: no I really don't think I, so I
1: think like we said a lot, two weeks ago that I, it really is just sort of chomping on the VR bit of this is the big money making thing it was really it wasn't until after the Facebook deal yeah. that they started getting angry about this when they suddenly had a ton of money yeah Yeah.
0: well hopefully that sorts itself out in any, in any way that's it for news this week So, we're well into our newest
1: theme month, localization. Localization is the process of bringing a game over from another country.
0: That doesn't just mean language translation. To sell a game in North America, you need to be able to translate over cultural references. And that was precisely Colin Williamson's job. He was a localization specialist for Square Enix back in the mid-2000s. Square Enix is known in the U.S. for the Final Fantasies here. These are long role-playing games that take about 20 hours or more to complete. There's a lot of dialogue, menus, attacks, and items to translate.
4: Uh, the one thing that always really got me about Square was just the scope of, uh, the scope of their projects was, was amazing. Um, when I first played Seven, I was like, oh my God, I've, I've, yeah, I'd never seen a game where something like, you know, like over a hundred people had worked on it and, uh, just seeing all, like all of those different, you know, development disciplines, uh, come together, uh, in one gigantic project, uh, it, it was just amazing. It, like, it... I think, like, FF, FF7 and, and, to some degree, uh, FF6 uh, really represented uh, just, like, this whole bet-the-farm attitude um, that you saw a lot of in Japan um, back uh, during the uh, the mid-to-late 90s. I guess a lot of it was because of the bubble economy as well. Um, but just 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 seeing the scope of, of, of these games was, was enough to make me really want to get in and, and get on board. I get, there, there, there just wasn't really anything... Uh, there wasn't really anything like it, and just the the level of execution, uh, that they were able to to put forth uh, was just so above and beyond, you know, everything else out there, uh, in, in terms of games that uh, I I can see why you know they, they became legendary at that point. Um, it when I think uh, maybe it was like the week after I had joined, um, they did the merger with Enix. And it was just, like, such a huge deal, and I had no idea what it actually meant, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be good or bad. Um, and, and I remember this: there was a French journalist uh, working there, and I was talking to him, and he was like, he was like, he was like oh, Colin, you're, this is terrible. You're, your life is over. Things will never be the same for you. By going to work for Square, you've made the worst decision of your life. And I was like, oh, no. But uh, in the end, things, things turned out Okay.
0: He arrived in 2002, just after the success of Final Fantasy X and the big screen flop of Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. It was a crazy time at Squaresoft. Uh, They had just merged with their biggest competitor, Enix. And they were working on even crazier projects, like Unlimited
1: Saga. One of the Saga was a passion project of Akitoshi Kawazu. It was such a critical and commercial failure that he was sort of ostracized at Square after it was released. The game was hard, not just to play, but to understand. Colin still isn't confident in his translation, even years later.
4: It was split up into like a bunch of different stories, um, and it was a really, really difficult game. And I remember jumping in and and just uh, uh, playing the debug roms and and being like, oh my god, like I, I don't know I don't know if I can do this job I don't I don't know if I can take I don't know if I'm man enough for this because because uh, I, I thought I was like oh my god this this game just so hard um, but but in the end like the game you know it, much like a, a lot of the you know the other saga games and a lot of uh, Kawazu-san's games like you know they're they're really hard and quirky and uh, and and so it was just yeah it, it was it was. It was kind of a it was kind of a shock because I was expecting uh, you know every game to be like you know FF ten but this game was you know super hardcore um, and there were a lot of a lot of translation challenges uh, especially uh, in the combat system. Um, I believe there was a system where the game would kind of uh, uh, take uh, Japanese words like uh, and, and just kind of jam them together to make uh, at the top of the screen to like describe a, a move set or just like a certain move so it would be like like power kick 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 punch something and it would look cool in Japanese but when you would do it in English uh, it, didn't, it didn't look so great and I don't think we really solved it in an elegant way I, I, I'd like to go back and, and do it again uh, but uh, you know it's, it, was, it was my first game there so I have to cut myself a little bit of slack What was the solution? Uh, we just jammed a bunch of English words together um, and it, 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 didn't, it didn't look so good
0: but luckily, Square, lower on funds than they had been in a while, began to re-release old Final Fantasy games. Colin became part of the team that re-translated Final Fantasies 1 through 6. There's only one problem. These games were originally translated by Ted
1: Wolseley. Wolseley, while low on time and resources, created memorable, if not always accurate, translations.
4: T- Ted, Ted is a god to us, you know. Um, when, when we were working there, uh, you know, we, we would hear stories about him and, and you know, the, the stuff that he accomplished... Uh, working with very, very little. Um, he, you know, Ted, Ted did not have the support that we have now, you know. Uh, you know, nowadays we can, you know, just, you know, uh, we're uh, usually working with the, with the team. Um, and we can just, you know, roll over and say, okay, hey, um, when is this text used? I can't figure this out. Um, what are the conditions I need to meet to make this uh, text uh, bubble pop up? And, you know, back then, like, you know, Woolsey was translating blind um and you know trying to you know get things done he had crazy deadlines and uh you know he he managed to make it work you know better than pretty much anyone else who had been uh, who had been doing it at the time um yeah ted is super cool like uh i think I, he's at microsoft now and uh you know we i, I finally got to meet him and uh, it was just like super super cool to you know talk about the the really old days and you know just insane text uh, length uh, limitations and you know, just like being really crammed for space and not understanding half of what's going on uh, because, you know, the data is just, you know, organized in such a jumble. Um, he had it really hard and man, he toughed it out. And I, I think I, I, some, you know, some people have issues, but, you know, I, I, I love all of the stuff that he, he's, he's worked on. I mean, I think it's got a ton of charm, especially st- stuff that you just would never see, you know, in, in games back in those days, just in terms of, you know, just really fun, you know, charming translations. Cool.
0: Cool. Um, now, one of it says on your resume that one of your jobs was helping maintain consistency across a lot of projects. What did that entail?
4: Well, when, when we started uh, remaking uh, the FF stuff, uh, we were just we 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 had uh, terms. You know, it, there's so many terms that are you know uh, shared across all of the games, and we're like, okay, it's time to sit down and you know just go through and figure out you know what's going to be what. Um, so for, for quite a while, there was like this, this, uh, uh, this, this big crunch where we were, we were just, you know, trying to take all of the legacy terms and figure out, you know, what, what was going to be carried on into, you know, future titles, you know, what was important and, uh, you know, what we could change. Um, and, uh, yeah, like stuff, you know, stuff like, you know, one game would be Phoenix feather, one game would be Phoenix down. And, you know, we just wanted to sit down and, and make sure all of that was consistent across the board. Um. I think that sometimes they uh, break consistency, but there's there's usually a, a good reason for doing it.
0: So, for instance, how many games did you end up try- end up making this consistent across? And like, was there a big database that you guys were moving back towards?
4: Um, like, whenever you start a project, uh, you you build up a, up a glossary, uh, which is uh, basically a huge Excel file, uh, just filled with uh, filled with game terms and 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 uh, you know names um, you know, item names, people names, uh, the names of places, um, stuff about the lore, And, you know, this is, this is just a great reference for, for anyone who's you know, working on the game to just, you know, bounce into and, and figure out, you know, what's, uh, what's going on and what this thing is called. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll discover a term that's not inside the database. Um, and you'll have to, you know, kind of go out and, and, you know, talk with people and figure out, you know, how to, how to implement it. Um, but yeah, um, I, I guess, uh, all that stuff was consistent across, uh, you know, all the FF games. And, man, there, there really are a lot of FF games these days. Um, I guess the, the biggest challenge I ever had was working on uh, Final Fantasy XI. Uh, I was the editor on that for the first maybe six years of service um, and a whole bunch of expansion packs. And that game is huge beyond, like, just all comprehension. Um, I, I really had a good time working on it, but, man... Uh, that game was was expansive, uh, to say the least.
0: Now, after all these years in, in the industry, um, what do you think are the marks of a great localization?
4: Hmm. Um, I think a really good localization is one wherein the localizers are given the opportunity to change a lot. And by change a lot, I mean... Um, be on the technical side, uh, the ability to add and remove lines when needed, um, the ability to change the length of a spoken line. Um, basically, if, if they're able to go in there and, you know, not just, just do a really nice translation, but also do a little bit of surgery to the script uh, to make things just flow a little bit better in, in whatever native tongue they're working in, uh, I, th- I think that's, that's tremendous Um, if you look at some of the limit, like, okay, so for example, um, I've, I never, I never finished Final Fantasy X, so I'm replaying the Vita version, um, and man, that, the, the the port is, is awesome, like, they really did a super good job on it, um, and a lot of the time, uh, like, the main characters will, will be like, yeah, okay, and they'll just, these, like, really strange little bursts. Um, of, you know, confirmation, and the reason for that is because, you know, the Japanese characters would just say, hi! Like, really, really fast. So, the voice actors, you know, had to, you know, match the lip flaps as close as they could, and also match the, you know, the recording length of the original line with, you know, no room to go over or under. Uh, so, I, I'd imagine, like, you know, in, in, in a more modern project, you would have the ability to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, noodle with your line lengths and, and make things a little, uh, make things a little bit cleaner. Uh, but I, I think, uh, a good localization is really all about, you know, um, the team trusting, uh, the person who's doing it. Um, and, you know, of course there's a tremendous responsibility on the translator to, uh, you know, bring just a lot of, you know, uh, just, you know, spark, uh, just uh, spark and fun and, and just cleverness. And, and it's, it's totally okay to, I think it's totally legitimate to go out and rewrite jokes or, you know, change accents to stuff that's more, uh. That's that you know American uh, gamers will be more familiar with. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, the I think you should be I think you should be allowed to make change. I think a, a straight translation is no fun, and uh, it's it's really important that that you have you know someone who's not just a good translator but a, a good writer as well.
0: A lot of time has changed since Wolseley was in charge of localizing Final Fantasy games.
4: Colin had a bigger
0: team, better resources, and more time to work with. But Colin stopped translating games in two thousand eight,
4: and since then the jobs continued to evolve the internet really, really happened. I mean, the internet was happening, you know, back in the early, in the early 2000s, but um, the amount of work uh, that you can outsource now, uh, this, this is across the board. This is uh, across, you know, all, all Japanese corporations uh, and, and game companies. Um, a, lot, a lot more stuff uh, in general is outsourced uh, because you have uh, a lot of actually really solid uh, outsource, uh, game outsourced localization companies. 8.4 um, uh, is excellent. Um, but uh, the skill of these Alistair's companies is they are able to get really, trans, uh, re- really um, just super experienced and super good translators from uh, all over the world um, and, you know, bring them together through uh, uh, just translation databases online. Uh, so, you know, people can, you know, log, they can log in and download their, you know, like their chunk of the game to translate and, you know, work from, work from anywhere. Um, back in the day, uh, I, our localization team was pretty much entirely internal. Uh, you know, which is of course really expensive. But you know, the the fact that you can work uh, next to the team and you know just have you know, total integration is you know I think it really shows in the localization work. But uh, nowadays, uh, just the uh, amount of uh, coordination and just pulling translators from all over the internet, uh, uh, outsource translators are just doing you know a real a really really killer job. Colin Williamson
0: is the AV producer at 17-Bit Games He used to be a localization specialist at Square Enix 17-Bits working on an upcoming game, Galaxy, inspired by 80s anime It'll be out before the end of the year If you want to learn more about the history of Final Fantasy We have a link to our summaries in our show notes Or if you're curious about
1: great localizations, Colin gave us a list And I've been working on a primer We'll link to those in the show notes as well
0: Moving from translating games to translating mediums, last
1: week we went to Comics vs. Games. Conference of Games is a yearly exhibit at the Bento Miso Collective that
0: showcases games made by comic authors. It's all done in partnership with the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. Hey, thanks for coming out to uh, the opening of the Comics
3: vs. Games 3D Gallery. Woo! How many of you are here
0: because you love 3D?
4: Yeah!
0: One of the
1: show's highlights was the 3D art gallery. Walk inside and all the artwork looks kind of blurry.
0: But put on a pair of red and blue 3D glasses and all the artwork gets an added layer of depth. The gallery was curated by Track Mode, a video game art collective based out of New York.
2: Uh, Track Mode is a collective filled up with various individuals, uh, writers, filmmakers, Musicians, video game makers, and we all love video games. And uh, you know, we're uh, you know, we celebrate video game culture. Me personally, um, the thing is, is like we all talk about video game culture, but I like to focus on the everyday, often the mundane. You know, the thing is, like video games are part of our identities. You know, everyone grew up with a video game console, and everyone. Even, like, you know, people think, oh, I'm not a gamer, but everyone's a gamer, because everyone grew up with it. There are certain things about the language which we incorporate in our everyday lives. It's affected other mediums. And Attract Mode, I believe, we try to, uh, to focus upon that. We
0: talked to member Matt Hawkins about the gallery and some of the art on display.
2: So basically, uh, this is the third Comics vs. Games uh, gallery that Attract Mode has been a part of. And, you know, um, at the end of last year, we had to figure out, all right, so what are we going to do next year? And someone, I think myself or my partner Adam, just said, comics is a game 3D. And we all laughed. like, But we realized, oh, let's do something 3D. And um, we figured, you know what, the thing is, like, video games are sort of moving. A lot of games are doing 3D stuff. And we're always trying to present video games in a comic book fashion, and what better way than to do it in a, in a form of using 3D that's been around since for like fi- over 50 years ago. Like uh, I think North American comics introduced stereoscopic, anaglyphic 3D, so we figured, all right, let's just present the prints in that fashion, and that's how it goes.
0: So what is the process like in making these... Because this is old-school 3D. This is yeah. red and blue yeah. 3D. Yeah. What is the process like in making these pictures like that?
2: Uh, it's not very easy. Um, basically... We asked all the artists to create um, all the artwork in separate layers. Because, you know, at this point, everyone uses Photoshop. So every element that is going to be separate, created in a separate layer. Um, and then we take it. And then we do some tweaking, some adjusting. Um, and then we basically create separate channels, the red and blue. And just it's a whole lot of tweaking. It's, uh, it's tricky. We, ourselves, were not masters of doing 3D initially and we had to you know my partner Adam who was in charge of production he had done 3D before but we were still that was primarily for like a game and we were just basically learning as we were going along so um, some of the prints are like version 1.5 of the 3D process but some of them are like 3.0 but they all work ultimately Um, but it's, it's it's tricky you know
0: the one that really stood out to me was the uh, year walk uh, yes. fan art. Yeah, yeah, that is. There's so much depth in that image. It's just the traditional, like the the kind of main arc that, that they put up, but the um, the art is like really. You can see a depth in it.
2: So Miko Walamez, who which we worked with number of times in the past, he's um I believe he's from Sweden. I don't know. He's from somewhere in Europe. But um, he's one of uh, my favorites to work with because I never know what I'm going to get from him. And with every artist I ask, okay, we're going to do this. And with every show, you pick the game. It's what you want to do. And he says, I want your walk. And I was like, pretty, wow, okay. I was a big fan of the game. Wow, we have an iOS game represented. And um, he's, the, he's the only artist of the batch who... I don't know how extensive his 3D... History is, but he's the one who says, I want to make sh- please make sure the heart pops out. So he was the one I was like the most eager to, I want him to be happy with the 3D effect. And when he saw it, he was very happy because he had glasses. Obviously, he knew, he knew what he wanted. Um, so very happy about how that turned out. All right. And then there's the little miniature, uh, cl- what looks like clay models? Uh, basically, they're um, Sculpty, I believe. The, the creator, um, Ventla. <laughs> Uh, he calls himself that. He's a, he is an artist who's uh, I believe his he's mostly known online for being like a chiptune, tune uh, mellow uh, Japanese instrument uh, artist whose goal is to create a hundred free albums uh, over the next couple of years. He's actually up to twenty five, um, but his real job is he's a toy designer. And um, he was actually part of one of the very first art sh- video game art shows o- on history, the IM8 bit. Like, he did little sculptures for them. So we asked him, like, hey, would you, would you mind doing something? Now, here's the deal. This, these sculptures were actually for our previous show in Seattle last year, um, Fangamer Cross Track Mode. But because of a screw-up with the postal service, it didn't arrive in time. But, like, this is perfect because, like, we're doing a 3D show. We've never really actually had sculptures before, so it, we figured it would be a nice little a- added bonus to all the 3D prints.
0: And, um, could you, well, just for people who can't see them, um, could you describe kind of like what the subject matter was for uh, that the one?
2: basic premises these are all uh, Nintendo characters that everyone has forgotten about. Like, you have uh, Stanley the Bugman from Donkey Kong 3, you have Gumshoe from that one Zapper game, you have the three uh, players from ice hockey, Wart from Mario 2. Um, two characters from Wrecking Crew, um, the dude from Star Fox, I'm sorry, Star Tropics, um, Alice from uh, Balloon Kid, which is the little-known uh, balloon fight sequel for the Game Boy, and uh, a, a pair of siblings, I think they're siblings from a Famicom strategy game, which I n- uh, never came out in America, so I, I don't know anything about them, personally, except they're cute. All right, I want
1: to
0: thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you very
1: much, appreciate it. So, Then there were the games made by comic creators. That's the premise of Comics versus Games. Miguel Sternberg of Spooky Squid Games partners comic artists with game designers and tasks them with making a game on a certain theme. This year, the
0: theme was VR, so both games, Alter and Libraria, were on a virtual reality headset. But be warned, both these games were actually very early in development. First up, Alter. Comic artist Jillian Bleckenhorst told us about the game.
5: You can't see the story in the game yet, but the... Idea behind it is that you're exploring the temple of a dead alien situ- uh, civilization. But all of these altars that they've built about events in their species timeline, you're actually making choices between one outcome or another. Um, and we're kind of hippies, so there's sort of an environmental aspect, so like are do you choose to like take care of your young or like do you choose to like make them be out go out and be strong, you choose to take care of your environment or do you choose to like manage the resources we're, We're trying not to make it really like good versus evil, but like, just sort of like this practical answer or this practical answer, and then sort of lead you through different caves based on the decisions you made to a different horrible apocalypse as to how these people have driven their civilization into the ground, and that's why all these temples are abandoned now.
1: Then we saw Libraria and had a chat with game designer Kyle Dwyer.
6: I'm the developer. um, Adam Hines is the artist and... um, like the story designer but when we both sat down and we were doing the Oculus Rift thing and we knew it was, uh, he hadn't done 3D so we knew it was going to be 2D art in a 3D world we were both kind of like pop-up books and then he was like I've been watching that Double Fine Adventure documentary and I was like so have I so we did a point and click adventure type thing and then uh, I think he just felt like doing black and white for the style and I think it worked out quite well because usually black and white games you have to do a bunch of fake stuff to get proper depth, but with the Rift, it's all just kind of implied as it is, anyways. So it looks pretty good. I'm, I'm quite a fan of how uh, how his art ended up coming out. What's it like? Was what, it like working, like making, doing an adventure game, especially when
1: you don't have that kind of traditional point and click interface?
6: Yeah, so I'm actually uh, really proud of the interface, even though it is kind of janky right now at parts. Um, basically, the user's left eye is a mouse and it just looks at things and when it's looking at something you can use a little icon pops up um so that you can try and use it and when you have certain things in your hand and you look at something and use it it'll do something different than if you don't have that thing in your hand so it's just kind of adapting that to a 3d world has been uh, one of the tougher challenges on my end
0: and just two days later we visited the bit Bizarre. it's like a one day only indie game flea market But the theme of Comics versus Games continued, as we talked about a Shakespeare
3: game to a comic book creator. Kill Shakespeare is an action-adventure story that takes all of Shakespeare's greatest heroes, his most menacing villains, puts them in the same world, and pits them against each other in a quest, whether save or kill, a mysterious wizard by the name of William
0: Shakespeare. Connor McCready is one of the creators of the comic Kill Shakespeare. He was at the BitBazaar to promote the prototype of the board game version of his comic.
3: I mean, I think it was too. Re- I mean, Kill Shakespeare's at its heart is a mashup, where you know we're taking Shakespeare's stories and retelling them. So we wanted people to have a game experience that was similar. We wanted them to feel that the missions they take on in this game to defeat Richard and Lady Macbeth felt organic and that they felt like a real story. It felt like they were maybe creating a new Shakespearean play. And because Kill Shakespeare's is semi co-op, which means that some point in the game you're going to have to decide when to stop supporting your fellow players and when to turn against them. We thought that that's going to create a bunch of new Shakespearean-style stories in our world. I'm Hamlet, and you're maybe playing Othello, and our game may be the story of how I betrayed you in the last turn. And so it was very important for us for the, everything to feel like it had a narrative thrust, and for players to feel like they were creating their own story. Now, how do, could you give a rough idea of how this game works? Sure. So I mean, at its heart, Kill Shakespeare is very much a it's a worker placement bidding game. So first turn, all the players, there are certain resources. There are troops. There are uh, letters that you can steal from Richard and Lady Macbeth that let you know their troop movement. There's uh, prophecies so you can sort of appeal to the fates to help you. And every turn, you have to decide how you're going to allocate your resources to acquire those those items. Um, And then from there, basically the game is an influence game. Richard and Lady Macbeth are going to be moving around the board, kind of like almost in Pandemic, how the disease spreads. As they spread around the board, they increase their influence in the parts of Illyria, which is the land you're in. You, as the rebe- rebels, are trying to decrease their influence and make sure that the peoples of the land, that their hope stays high. So if you either let people give up hope or you let Richard and Lady Macbeth spread too much influence, you're going to lose. So
0: this aspect of hope, was that? W- were, did you play any part in that design?
3: No, no. I mean, that was something that Wolf and Tomas really wanted to play in. When they read the comic books, they were like, oh... You know, a lot of the way we made Richard was a psychological bully who he, on one hand, he'll build like churches and, you know, aqueducts for his people. So they're like, oh, wow, Richard's a good king. Yet at the same time, he runs a really viciously bloody type of reign. So if you step out of line, you're going, something horrible is going to happen to you. So Wolf and Thomas are like, oh, that notion of hope, false hope, giving hope, stealing hope is a real big part of Kill Shakespeare. We want to invent a mechanism where we can play around hope, and so yeah, so they came up with this, hey, how do we play around with the idea of hope, and then re- I guess it rebellion is really you know, hey it's great, if you're the rebels and you're winning battles, but the people, for whatever reason they're getting propaganda that says you're not they're going to give up hope, and you're never going to be able to win the rebellion so that was the part that we wanted to put in as well
0: so as a as the creator of kind of this um, the, this series um how was it kind of taking a step back and letting someone else then be able to kind of create a simulation of, uh, of your world?
3: It was really cool. I mean, I love board games, and when I was younger, I used to try to mess around with designing board games, but I mean, that's like such a different world. So, like, create a board game and to write a board game or any type of game is a really distinct skill. So, it was really nice to be able to work with a couple of guys and the whole IDW team with people who had been involved in making games before, knew how to make it, and, you know, I mean, IDW has got a lot of properties. I mean, we were really flattered when they were like, guys, we want to do something with you first. Like, we think you built a great world here, and we think we can do something really interesting. And same thing. I mean, it's amazing when you get guys like Yedo was like a really highly praised game. So it's amazing when you get these guys saying, you know, like the designers like, hey, this is our favorite world we've been able to work in because there's so much story already. All their design elements, they didn't have to try to guess how they wanted to influence the story, they're like, oh, there's the story already. Well, let's figure out a game element that creates that feeling. And so that was pretty cool. And I, We're really excited because everything we've gotten from them feels like it fits in our world rather than just like, oh, I, it says it killed Shakespeare, but I don't get why this board game has anything to do with the comics. As a comic book writer, I'm like, wow, the game really fits in. So much so that we're actually doing a new comic series based on the game.
0: How's that going to work?
3: Uh, so we we introduced one new character to the board game, Viola. Or Viola, sorry. Uh, she's not a character that showed up in the comics. So we decided, all right, well, let's create her backstory in the Kill Shakespeare world. But we created her first for the game. In the game, she's sort of a pirate. So she sails around the edges of Illyria and kind of can do hit and run attacks. No other character can do that. So we had to create a backstory for, okay, why is Viola a pirate? And in the real play... Viola pretends to be a man in her play named Cesario, who she claimed was a pirate, but you're never really sure if that was true or not. So our story now goes and shows that, yes, that guy did exist, and why did Viola choose to steal his name? So that was kind of a cool, like, we never would have thought to do that story at all. It just popped up because of the way the game was developing. The game was partially
1: funded through Kickstarter, although Connor says it was more of a marketing tactic than a necessity.
3: So the way we set it up was IDW made it clear in the Kickstarter that whether anybody supported the Kickstarter or not, the game was going to come out. The reason we did the Kickstarter was for two reasons. One was so that we could get tap into our existing fan base and give them an opportunity to pre-order the game at a cheaper price. And basically say, hey, thanks for being a fan. Rather than you paying full retail, you can just buy the game cheaper. The other thing that that let us do was it let us figure out what bonus elements people were going to want the most. So we're going to do like, there's going to be a thicker board. Uh, we've got two expansion sets that we're going to be putting out immediately through that. Um, people were really excited about doing like special meeples, so that's something we're looking at doing. So basically, the Kickstarter was—it was really about pre-orders, and it was about—we found that for Kickstarter and board games, it seems like the best way to learn about a new interesting board game is through Kickstarter. Like that's—that's that's how people making board games get it out to the world. And so we said for this industry or for this audience of board game players who may or may not know much about Kill Shakespeare going through Kickstarter, and then which in turn gets you through BBG, you know, which in turn gets you through like Dork Tower, like that was how we were going to be able to reach out to the game audience. And whether they pre-ordered the game or not wasn't the point. We wanted them to be like, oh, hey, there's this crazy Kill Shakespeare semi co-op out. I want to keep an eye out for it. And it, it's actually, it really helped us. We, we got really solid pre-orders from specialty shops, which makes us feel really confident that this game is going to be able to be in stores for a while and continually build and find new uh, players. Connor McCurry is one of the creators of the comic Kill Shakespeare. They're
0: based here in Toronto. But there's more than one way to move between books and games. Another option is the zine. A zine is like a personalized magazine. They're short and often handmade, but they're close to the creators.
1: Elizabeth Simmons was on a panel about video game zines at the BitBazaar.
5: Um, I really like print stuff. I just do. Um, I like how it smells. Uh, I like having objects in my house.
0: She sees them as a way to collect her artwork and communicate ideas like misogyny in games.
5: I, the reason I I did my first zine was because I was kind of making like some stupid joke on Twitter about, um, uh, me and Kara Ellison do uh, an occasional comic for Kotaku, and uh, we did one about feminism. And so a lot of people responded in the comments, being like, "Because uh, because like Solid Snake has a great butt, therefore there's no such thing as misogyny." And I was like, "What?" And so I started making jokes about like making doing a painting. Um, of like snakes butt as proof that like there's no such thing as misogyny and it it kinda like snowballed a little bit and I was like well what if I did like a bunch of sexy man pictures about video games to prove I'm doing scare quotes uh, to prove that there's no such thing as misogyny because men have been objectified before lol Um, and I was like you know what? this makes more sense as like a collection of like six things And uh, and I ended up making nine paintings and selling it as a zine. It just made sense. I don't know. Yeah.
1: What is it about uh, game culture you think that lends it towards zines? Because you're talking about a bit of a game zine renaissance.
5: Um, I mean, I think that, like, especially now, I think games culture uh, is very fixated on, like, uh, nostalgia. I think there is a nostalgia for, like... I mean, you see, like, pixelated stuff, low-res stuff, low-fi stuff um, kind of stuff going back to, to the way that games were in the 80s and 90s um, or at least trying to kind of emulate that or bring that into the present um, and zines are just another way of doing that. Um, instead of bringing the games themselves uh, into the past or whatever um, it's bringing the talking about games into the past.
1: There's something that's always been kind of countercultural about zines, and the thing I, I note a lot about zines and stuff like that—it's it's always sort of a response to something. You talked about zines sort of being lashing out a little bit, about kind of a response to immediacy. Do you, th- do you think there's something kind of countercultural about it that makes it really work?
5: I mean, for me, like the only the things that I've made zines about uh, personally have been—one was about. You know, the, like one of them, like one of them was a, a zine about feminism. The other ones were zines about other kinds of activism. Um, it's just a game is a response to people who say it's just a game in order to deflect like valid criticism about um, about video games. And the idea is that here, let's make a zine called "It's Just a Game," and in it, there will just be like a bunch of things explaining why it. Quotes again uh, is not just a game. Like here are reasons why either like discrimination in games affects my life, just, or or such and such a game uh, affected my life in a positive way, or here's a way in which like games are more than just like uh, diversions. This is a way that games like helped me form a community. This is a way that games help me come to terms with my identity. Any of these things. So for me, zines are a form of activism. So I think that there is kind of like. Uh, connection to the old, like, you know, activist zines in the 80s, 90s, etc.
1: Uh, yeah. Do you think there's sort of a connection? You, you talk a lot about zines having something physical, kind of, especially in the panel, you're talking about leaving your mark on something you really love. Do you think there's something having, kind of, you're selling the, the T-shirts and the pins, there's something physical, like, showing yourself as this in real space that you kind of can't get out of just... A joke on the internet?
5: Um, I don't know. Uh, I can't speak for for people in general, and and I am a you know I am a child of the internet. Um, but I will say that anecdotally, in terms of like stuff that sells, physical stuff is what people want, like z like physical zines, t-shirts, buttons, stickers. That's like. Whenever I've had anything successful that people want to pay for, it's always a physical thing. And for me, like, it isn't about—I mean, I haven't like gotten rich quick with this kind of stuff. It's more about like that to me indicates like, huh, there is a, a contingent, a, a contingent of people who like are just really interested in having physical objects uh, representing what they love, what they're interested in, um, what they want to support, rather than just digital stuff. Even though that's kind of what we're taught as internet people.
0: Elizabeth Simmons is an artist and zine creator. You can find her zine Ain't No Such Thing as Misogyny at aliz.abeth.net.
1: That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Igbaling. And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to play was made with the
0: help of... Colin Williamson. Matthew Hawkins.
6: Jillian Bleckenhorst.
0: Kyle Dwyer. Connor
3: McCreary.
5: And Elizabeth Simmons. For extended versions,
0: uh, versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website builttoplay.ca. We're we'll available on un- Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know what we're doing, and more people can find the show. But leave us a positive review because if you leave us a negative review, we'll break into your house and make sure you have a connect. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Arson every Saturday at one p.m. and rerun every Monday and Thursday, also
1: at one p.m. Convenient. And we update the website every
0: Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at builttoplay and me personally
1: at flarcon and I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. You can send us hate mail or love letters, whatever you please, at our new email mail at built2play.ca I'm personally taking pitches for Peter Molyneux Fan Fiction. Thank you so much for listening.